Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka, and we are recording this broadcast on May the 26th. Now that Memorial Day is behind us, um, we're moving into summer and businesses are starting to reopen. People are engaging in outdoor activities uh, more, and uh, it's time to revisit how viral transmission occurs. Here today to discuss this with us is Dr. Greg Poland, virologist and infectious disease expert at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Poland. Good to be back. Well, what have you got to tell us right off the top about, um, about transmission and sort of a recap of that? I think our understanding has changed some in the past, I think, two months and all, since yeah. all of this began. So if you'd kind of share that with us, that'd be great. Yeah, there have been a lot of interesting uh, new science that has occurred. Uh, probably the one most relevant to all of us is the uh, best estimate is that about 40% of viral transmission occurs from person to person prior to the development of any symptoms. So let's just call it roughly half of transmission occurring before the person is aware that they have any symptoms, emphasizing the need for continuing the social distancing, masking, and hand hygiene. The other thing is we've talked a lot about the so-called R-naught or reproductive number of the virus. Again, that's a, a metric that uh, tries to measure if I were to become infected, on average, how many people do I infect? And when you, when you look across countries, that number varies quite a bit from about two to six, with the average being around two to three. So I think the R-naught is higher than we initially estimated. And that makes sense. That's our common experience as we're looking at about 1.6 million cases in the U.S. with almost 100,000 deaths. It fits with that. But here's the interesting thing. When you actually look at the math, and I, I worked that out, so an R naught of one means that on average I infect one other person, okay? If, if the virus had an R naught of one, after 60 days, you'd see about 14,000 cases. An R naught of 1.1 leads to 25,000 cases by two months. So you see the exponential, not linear, the exponential rise in cases, which is why the social distancing and the masking is such a powerful thing that we can do in terms of suppressing that number of cases. The other thing is we've learned a lot actually very recently about this multi-system inflammatory syndrome that occurs uh, oddly all the way up until the teens, even young 20s. Uh, this is important because young, we tend to think young people having very mild disease, et cetera. But across the US, uh, an estimated 350 uh, uh, confirmed and probable cases are being investigated in association with with COVID-19. We've talked before about the multi-system dimension of this disease, and we're certainly seeing that play out in terms of the effects on the heart, particularly. Uh, one question that has come up, because it did come up with SARS, is could this virus be excreted uh, in the feces? So would there be any oral fecal route of transmission? And a group of Chinese investigators has actually cultured it now out of a stool and demonstrated that, yeah, it's live virus that can infect. So 
we've learned a lot and that's just a sprinkling of what's been learned. Greg, can I ask you to clarify about transmission? What's the, you know, we're wearing masks and we're wearing safety glasses at work even when interacting with patients. So what are the very most common ways that this is passed from person to person? And what are some of the possible ways, but it doesn't happen as, as frequently? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, there's been a lot of confusion about that. In part, it depends on circumstance. So uh, in my practice, I'm not doing aerosol generating procedures. You as an anesthesiologist could well be doing those. And that's a very high risk type situation because you have aerosol. You need N95 face shields, complete uh, personal protective gear. For the rest of us, a mask, as you say, in the medical setting where we're assessing whether somebody may have COVID-19, we're wearing a face shield or, or goggles, and of course, uh, absolutely scrupulous uh, hand hygiene. For the lay public, what should they be doing? Well, the vast majority of that is being transmitted through larger respiratory droplets. That's fortunate because masking and space are the thing that are our best defenses against large droplet. This is the droplets you can see when you cough, when you sneeze, things like that. So a cloth covering, face covering or mask absolutely is helpful in decreasing the expulsion of that and in the breathing in of it. Uh, the, the social distancing is important, though I think the modeling has shown distances that are considerably larger than the, I don't even know where the six foot uh, uh, kind of rule of thumb uh, uh, came from. So uh, I think what you do as a, as a lay person is when you're outside the home and you're going to be around people, you wear a mask. You try to maintain a, as much distance between you and other people as you can and you do the hand hygiene. The other thing that has come up is, well, what about hard surfaces? Um, and, and this has been confusing. You absolutely can identify the virus on hard surfaces. The question is, is that at an infectious dose high enough? Again, it depends on circumstance. I've watched people sneeze into their hand, grab the door handle and open it. Do I want to be the guy that comes right behind them and grab that door? No way. That surface is contaminated. We know that from norovirus, influenza, and in certain modeling circumstances, we know that for coronavirus. So my, my way of thinking is, why would you take the risk? You, you use appropriate hand hygiene. You sanitize hard surfaces, as we are at Mayo, uh, because we want to do everything we can to keep people safe. So I think those are important things. But hard surfaces are secondary to the respiratory route by which this is transmitted. I'm going to go back to something that you said a little earlier. Uh, we were talking about people being asymptomatic. So if you just clarify for us, is it possible to have the virus, to never become ill, uh, to never have symptoms that we see commonly listed for COVID-19, and yet be able to pass it to someone else? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that can happen in multiple ways. One is I could become infected, never have any symptoms ever, and still pass it on. The more common scenario is probably I get infected with it. Remember, it takes about five days or so before I develop symptoms. After a day or two or three, 
after I'm infected, but before I develop symptoms, that's a prime time to transmit the virus. And we think about 40% of all cases are occurring that way. So you cannot look at somebody and say, well, they don't look sick or I don't feel sick. Why do I have to take these you know, precautions if I go to visit my elderly grandmother or you know, I'm going to go to the store or something? It's because you might be infected, not know it, do absolutely fine, but still represent a risk to other people. You know, one of the things that has interested me quite a bit about this process that we've been going through in the last couple of months of managing this virus is that there seems to be a lot of disagreement. So the CDC and the World Health Organization seem to disagree about some things such as uh, surface transmission. States seem to disagree with each other about what it's safe to open up. Why do you think that is and who should we listen to? Yeah, that's a really tough question because there's a whole lot of factors that obviously enter into that from scientific to economic to political to cultural differences. I I think I heard it best said this way. One's risk is, uh, in a way, a simple summary of time, space, people, and place. And so when you look at those four factors and you consider all the variations and permutations in those, it's very hard to say, well, uh, going outside is risk-free. Well, uh, you're, you're right. If you're never within 30 feet, say, uh, of people, probably is so low of a risk, you can't measure it. Go to a pool, which is outside that's packed with people, very high risk. Go to a, a, an elderly person going to a grocery store first thing in the morning where they only let you know, 20 people in at a time, very low risk. Go to a, uh, a church, a bar, a restaurant where people are packed in, moderate to high risk. So, so that's where people are arguing. The, the models have changed over time as they become more and more informed. So you're starting to see a convergence of models showing that six feet isn't enough. You need more distance than that. That the virus can linger in the air. That masks work. Um, but, and, and, and the respiratory route is by far, if you, if you could only, and thankfully it's not this way, but if you could only put your effort into one thing, it'd be mask and distance, not, not surfaces. But if you want a full appreciation of the model, you begin to look at surfaces, you begin to look at things like how close, what vapor pressure, what temperature, what humidity, because all of those are, are important. So it's, it's really, I think what you're seeing in large part when people issue slightly different recommendations is access to the best science and understanding of the convergence of the modeling and the fact that they may be looking at one set of conditions, another group at a different set of connections, and while they sound contradictory, they're both right. So it's a, it's a, for, the, for the lay person, I, I understand it's very confusing On top of that, you have what we thought 18 weeks ago and what we now know 18 weeks later. So all of that informs these recommendations. Yeah, that's that's very interesting how things differ. And I I just came up with a little catchphrase for you. Dr. Poland from Mayo Clinic says, mask and move away. That's really good. You can remember that. 
I like it. I'm going to use it. I don't know what the royalty fee will be yet, but I'm going to use right. it. Yeah. Well, maybe I get a little part of that problem. <laughs> um, you talked about church gatherings, um, uh, gatherings like that. I am aware that here at Mayo, we've had some contacts who have who have been in uh, work contact with others, and so there's been a large number of people affected. Also, uh, we talked before about meatpacking plants, and that continues to be an issue. I just saw that, uh, I think, in the New York Times or the Washington Post yesterday. Are there examples of where people have had contact and then had many people develop the virus? Oh, yeah. That, you know, just, just to use uh, two church examples, because they've been uh, published now and are well known. Um, there's, a, there's a case in the state of Washington where they had a choir practice that involved uh, 61 people that attended. 32 people got infected. That's confirmed. 20 probable. Three were hospitalized and two died. That's the seriousness of this. Uh, even though they were spaced apart, uh, they were together for about a little over two hours. More recently, there was a church in Arkansas where 92 people uh, gathered for an event and 35 of them ended up infected. So th this, is, this is why I, I sort of use the time, space, people, and place because when you're, there's nothing uh, intrinsically more dangerous about a church other than you have a large number of people put together for a prolonged period of time. Were they together five, 15 minutes, like, I don't know, running into a store, grabbing something and coming out? That's a much different situation than when you're together for an hour, or in the case of that choir practice, two, two and a half hours long. It also demonstrates just how quickly transmission can occur and how asymptomatic Thematic transmission, which we talked about earlier, can occur. So again, it's really important that this uh, reopening, as we're calling it, be done not as a light switch on or off, but as a dimmer switch, a rheostat, where we do it slowly, measure what phase, what happens after phase one, then go to phase two, pause, measure what happens, and do it in a, in a logical way like that. I think the way to I've often uh, thought of it this way. Maybe the way to say it to people is something like this. You're going to go to this party. You are, if we do nothing, you're going to get infected. Three people are going to get hospitalized and one's going to die or come near to death. What do you want to do now in terms Stay of home. precautions? Yeah. And you might say, you know what? A pool party's not worth it. Uh, at, at this point. I don't want to get my parents sick, my grandparents, my neighbors. Um, you're right. Cases, uh, you know, you can go on to uh, various apps and you can see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the percentage change from the prior week so that you can be very informed about your local area. You know, we, we were talking earlier, you see it done uh, poorly or you see it done well. I had to go and get a particular Thing for the house and we went to three of the big box stores so to speak hand sanitizer masks everything else one in one of those stores was were employees wearing masks one store they wore basically all wore them improperly one store didn't even bother that's all in the same geographic location and yet uh, Helena you were telling me about a store that I thought 
uh, it'd be worth hearing uh, your story about that because I thought this is data informed. This is really wise in terms of being sure that the customers are safe. Yeah, I've been amazed by the variation in what's required in stores as well. One example I had given you was the example of a grocery store where only one member of the family can enter and everyone must be wearing a mask and they've put arrows on the floor to keep the traffic moving in only one dis uh, direction so that people can distance. Another example is that I went, to a, um, I went to a running store this weekend to get a new pair of tennis shoes because now all we can do is uh, run outside, right? Um, and I had to make an appointment to go in their store on the telephone. Uh, I had to tell them what type of shoes I might be interested in or do a pre-fitting online. When I entered the store, I had to remove my own socks and shoes and then stay behind a masking tape um, area that they had made for people to walk a little bit and try the shoes that they gave them to try on. Um, and so it was really, uh, they were, and we had to sanitize our hands once we went in too. And so I was really impressed uh, you couldn't even go to the register. You just gave them your credit card across the line mm -hmm. and then they took care of it for you. But um, I was really amazed by that well, and, and I'm, felt I'm, heartened I'm, that they were taking things so seriously. Yeah, I'm impressed. In fact, I, I think the if you could divide what's happening in the co economy into winners and losers, I think it's the winners are the ones that are going to take this seriously, be data informed and evidence driven like we are in medicine and are going to do everything they can for their customers to not just feel, but see that they're being taken care of and are, and are being kept safe. And I think that benefits all of us from a public health point of view. Yeah, sure. Um, I was, I, it made me very glad that I didn't shop online, which is what we've been doing for most things to avoid having to go into stores and shopped local. I felt very safe doing that. Um, and so I was really impressed. That's good, I'm impressed hearing about it. Let's move on to another topic, Greg, travel. Mm. So my 50th birthday is coming up next week and I had hoped to go on a trip with my husband and kids and grandsons uh, for my birthday. And we kept putting off planning it and putting off planning it once this came along and not knowing what to do. We finally just decided we can't, uh, we shouldn't go right now. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think about uh, travel um, in, in general, and also for people who really need to be traveling at this time. Yeah, so while you were celebrating with thinking of a vacation over the weekend, I got my Medicare card. So, <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. I, I am now in the high-risk group. <laughs> so uh, you've asked a really important question because this involves graduations, weddings. I've gotten a lot of questions about weddings about summer vacations, kids off school. So this is really important in our, in our emotional well-being. What I would say is this. Um, I think local travel under the right circumstances can be safe. I think travel in your car can be safe. I think travel by airplane for those that have to access, you know, tertiary quaternary care medicine, like, like our own medical center. Those people have to travel. It's, it's not like it's an option. They have an, a diagnosis that's unclear. They have a life-threatening situation. They might have a cancer, heart disease requiring a procedure. Those have to be done. And there's a way to do it safely. There's a way to travel unsafely. 
And this is where I teach about contextually appropriate layers of protection. Think of yourself or your family unit as the core of an onion. How many layers do you have to put around yourself that are feasible and yet keep you protected? So for you and I that are, that are healthy, um, I go, if I travel and I have to pump gas, uh, the cheapest thing is we use a baggie. So I put a baggie on my hand, touch the handle, throw it away, get in my car, hand sanitize, and off I go. I don't go into the store um, to touch things and, and browse things. If we can, we avoid using a, a public bathroom. So those are the only necessary layers of, of protection. Uh, I have a buddy that had to travel up to Mayo, and he did things that, you know, I talked to him on the phone. He needed to come to Mayo. He did so very safely. He was very impressed with all that we were doing. Um, and he said, you know, I'm safer here than in my home. I said, you're, you're actually probably right. <laughs> but uh, what did he do for the hotel? He called ahead, asked for a room that hadn't been used in the previous two to three days. They did that for him. He brought his own pillow and bedding. When they got into the room, they sanitized all the surfaces that they were going to touch. Talk to them about how you order hot, not cold, takeout food and how you deal with that. He had a great experience. He had no problem whatsoever. So, so I think people who think about what are those layers of protection, obviously we might need seven of those layers for somebody who's, say, had an organ transplant. You and I need a couple of layers. So thinking through what that needs to be, talking with your doctor in advance or with the family you're gonna visit and how you're gonna social distance, et cetera. I think it can be done, needs to be done wisely, needs to be done thoughtfully. Uh, in terms of gathering for pool parties, large weddings, I, that I think is much riskier. You're inherently bringing, let's say it's a wedding of 250 people. You're probably bringing 200, 220 of those people from 200 different geographic locations into one room and setting at a time. I, I don't th think that that's something that is low risk. I think that's moderate to high risk. So you just have to think through that and, and be thoughtful. To be, to be very honest, we have to live our lives. We don't wanna be germophobic and be paralyzed in, into you know, not being able to do the things that, that make life worth living, right? It's doing so thoughtfully, wisely, and in the right context with the right people. Mayo has, we've started giving some advice to patients when they travel here, including a little travel packet if yeah. desired, um, to help them uh, have some instruction about some of the things you just talked about. So, yeah. No, I mean, I'm hearing that from my patient. They're very impressed with just how safe and how, uh, they, they said, well, you know, I, I kind of expected masks, but I didn't expect the many layers of things that are being done. Uh, to keep us safe. And I, I think that's going to that's gonna reverberate throughout the economy is that stores and businesses are going to learn. We really do have to take this uh, uh, very seriously in order to keep people safe. Summer is upon us. Mm. And um, naturally, uh, we in Minnesota in particular want to get outside and thaw out, <laughs> maybe getting too hot in other places. Are there specific activities that families could choose to do or individuals that may be more safe outdoors um, and would be better choices than others? 
Yeah. Well, we always kid that we get about two weeks of summer, right? So, and two or three of those days it rains. So, uh, yeah, it's a great question, and there are things. Biking can be very safe as long as it's not in packs with other people. Camping, any kind of outdoor activity where you're walking, running, biking, any of those things where you can maintain distance from one another, I think is, is, is good. I particularly like the camping idea. And the reason for it is it gets you away from all the distractions. It gets you into nature. You're not watching the television. You're not reading the newspaper. Imagine this, you're together as a family for a weekend, a week, things like that. And I've suggested that to many people. And inevitably they come back and say, how relaxing that was, how, how stress-free it was, how enjoyable it was. So there are, there are lots of activities like that that can be done. Uh, personal opinion, I wouldn't go on cruise ships, for example. I probably would not send my kid to a summer camp where they're going to be you know, in dormitories with th- kids from 300 different locations throughout the U.S. As valuable as those experiences are. I don't think this is the right season in which to do that. But any other kind of activity where you can ensure distancing, I think is, is great. And you made, you made the point, Helena, and I, I, I can't emphasize it enough. That there's good data to show this. Being outdoors is actually important to our health and our well-being, if only so that we make vitamin D from the sunlight. It's very likely, again, using my dimmer switch analogy, that we'll be able to turn to phase one, phase two, maybe we'll even have a window this summer of phase three. But I think we have to kind of prepare ourselves mentally that we're probably going to have to dial back again this fall. It is very likely that we're going to see a resurgence of cases. All the models suggest that. All of us who study these viruses believe that's what's going to happen. We could be surprised, but we think that's what's going to happen. So how do we do that thoughtfully and wisely, knowing that may come, rather than having to do it, as we did last time, in an emergency and not really understanding everything uh, that was happening? To me, at the family level, that means, you know, we probably need to take it seriously. We need to be well-stocked to be able to shelter in home for 30, ideally 60 days or more. We need certain supplies. How are we going to deal with school? Um, Maybe get the kids in this summer, not wait to get caught up with their immunizations. That's been a big issue nationally and, and worldwide. And then the thing that I think is really important is often people wait to get their flu vaccines and their pneumonia vaccines until you know Christmas time and later. This is a year to get those vaccines caught up and get them as early as you can before we start seeing a resurgence of COVID-19. We don't want that confusion in symptoms. We don't want people to be ill. And every year, as you know, uh, we have a major surge demand on the medical system because of flu. So we'd be really wise to attend to that early on. Uh, Thanks, Dr. Poland, for being with us today. My pleasure.
We always appreciate your insights. This has been Mayo Clinic Q&A. Thank you so much for joining us today and we wish you a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all the Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.